Section 36 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 4. Chapter 3. Napoleon. Part 2. It was a last echo of Danton's terrible policy, Faire Pure Royaliste, a warning that in his dealings with them, the present master of France would exact an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and perhaps even an eye for a tooth. But if in Europe the rumor of this brutal murder provoked a thrill of horror, in France it served his turn. To the mass of the French public the innocent young duke kidnapped from his German home, was as surely a conspirator and a would-be assassin as Pichegru or Cadudal. Had he not paid the penalty of his crimes? His affair was, as the French say, chose juger, and his memory a thing to abhor. The general adoration for Bonaparte was still increased by the danger from which he had so narrowly escaped, and the lesson to be drawn from the whole affair appeared the need of protecting him by every means. Now the obvious way of defending a sovereign against assassination is to make his throne hereditary. There is far less inducement to remove a king who leaves an heir behind him. So just a week after the shooting of the hapless Enghien, the Senate sent a solemn message to Bonaparte, adjuring him to assume a hereditary crown to take the style and title of napoleon emperor the country consulted as before by a plebiscite responded by a vote in which three million five hundred thousand eyes took all the sting from a bare five thousand nose meanwhile cadudal was executed and pichegru was found strangled in his prison the happiest moment of my life the emperor said one day in his exile was perhaps after my victories in italy what enthusiasm what cries of long live the liberator of italy and all at twenty-five from that time i saw what i might become i already saw the world beneath me as if i were being carried through the air he must indeed have felt the world beneath him on that eighteenth of may eighteen o four when he stood in notre dame crowned with laurel as we see him in david's great picture his generals all round him a mass of gold and frothing feathers his wife kneeling at his feet her heavy jewelled train held by attendant princesses behind him on the steps of the altar the pope of rome come so far to consecrate the lord's anointed but as pope pius lifted from the altar the very crown of charlemagne napoleon suddenly reached out his arm seized the symbol of sovereignty and with his own hand unaided settled it firmly on his brows i found the crown of france in the gutter he said one day later and i picked it up on the point of my sword the emperor soon found himself at war with half the world the peace of amiens had but lasted a twelvemonth and napoleon was again fighting england tooth and nail by a characteristic act of his arbitrary authority he detained as prisoners of war all the english travelling or residing in france at the moment when war was declared anew his wrath against england flamed fiery than ever since his discovery of the royalist plot for in his eyes 
perfidious Albion was not only a rival and enemy, but the harbourer of all conspirators, the refuge of the Count of Artois, the chartered meeting-place of assassins. But he would soon reduce those proud islanders to nothingness. During the summer of 1804 he concentrated his extraordinary intelligence on an immense project, that of the utter destruction of his enemy, and he spent five weeks on the north coast in front of Dover. Why did he not succeed? Is there a power that protects the brave against a tyrant? Napoleon seems to have forgotten nothing. His army was ready. His navy, by a brilliant series of feints, was to decoy our ships to defend the coasts of Egypt and of India. Give me three days undisturbed in the Dover Straits, and with God's help I'll make an end of England. Those three days, happily, he was not to have. In vain he stands on the shores of Boulogne, mapping out his future conquests and muttering to himself, Je ferai une telle pure aux Anglais. In vain his ships set out for the east in the most convincing order. No visible arm from heaven intervened. Did a clerk in the French war office, copying out the orders for the French fleet, he must have been a functionary of some rank, betray the emperor's secret, as it has been supposed? John Bull remains unmoved, cruises calmly in the channel, lets them dash unopposed towards Calcutta and Alexandria. After one bare week of emotion, London is cool as a cucumber. Admiral Cornwallis continues to blockade the best French ships in Brest Harbour, and there they remain, bottled up, as our modern phrase goes, while Nelson keeps an imperturbable eye on Toulon. In vain, swift as swallows, the French ships skimmed past the coasts of Ireland to Egypt to the West Indies. John Bull never turned a hair, smoked his pipe on his safe cliffs, and never thought of changing his plans. There were no zeppelins in those days. And with the English boats in the channel, no fear. Despite the concentration of Frenchmen and flat-bottomed boats on the sands across the ditch, no fear lest the fuming emperor should slip across some dark night and invite himself to breakfast. It is true that one fine day the Corsican was to taste of English hospitality on an island, but not on ours. Napoleon, in his best years, was never obstinate. When he saw that one of his plans was doomed to failure, he immediately substituted another, as he himself explained to Las Casas in the memorial in his own remarkable words, I was never bent on forcing circumstances to fit into my conceptions. As a rule, I let myself be led by the course of events. Who beforehand can say what unsuspected accident may change the shape of things? How often I have had to alter the very essence of a plan. Indeed, I nearly always acted on a general view of things, rather than in accordance with a settled project. End of section 36.